The Torah tells us in this week's reading that at first, all people, descendants of Noah, were one nation and spoke one language. And they settled together in the valley of Shinar, which the Torah identifies as what would later become Babylon. That's today Mesopotamia. Um, Often uh, historians think that Shinar is what's called today Sumer, which was an ancient Mesopotamian um, land. So the people, the Torah tells the people, set about building a city along with a tower. God says, let me go down and see what the people have done. And he comes down and he sees what the people have done. And he says, let us um, mix them up and spread them across the earth. And so, while the story of the Tower of Babel is a fascinating story, the Torah doesn't give us much information, but the Midrashim give us a lot of information, commentaries discussed in great detail. But my goal today is not to focus on the fascinating story of the Tower of Babel and what they did wrong and why God mixed them up and spread them across the earth. But what I'd like to focus on today is the creation of the 70 nations. And the Midrash tells us when God mixed up all the nations there at the Tower of Babel, he called 70 angels and he appointed one angel in charge of each nation. He said, I'm going to split these people into 70 groups and each one of you are going to be responsible for another nation. And so God changed their languages, spread them out. So each nation settled in a different place and spoke a different language. And as a result, there were 70 nations speaking 70 languages. Why 70? So later we find the number 70 a couple times in the Torah. When Jacob first goes down to Egypt to meet his son Joseph, and he brings all his children and grandchildren, even his great-grandchildren at this point, the Torah lists all of Jacob's descendants, and (laughs) gives us a total, Jacob has 70 descendants. At this time, male descendants. We also find later, when Moses takes the people out of Egypt, there are 70 elders, 70 leaders. And later, when God tells Moses to appoint a Sanhedrin, a supreme council, he tells him to take 70 leaders and make them members of the supreme council. Again, the number 70. Why are these these all the numbers 70? It's one of the great Torah commentaries. The Ramban Ramosha ben Nachman, or also known as Nachmanides, explains that 70, that is the maximum number of opinions and powers that can be out there. So there are different viewpoints on things. You can get up to 70. Interesting, later, the Talmud tells us, that there are 70 ways to explain each part of the Torah. There's 70 different ways to explain it. There was actually a great scholar in um, Europe before World War II, Rabbi Yosef Engel, who wrote a book where he took one idea and he gave 70 explanations to show that you can give 70 explanations for any teaching in Torah. So there are 70 possible approaches to everything. And therefore, Ramban explains that is why there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin, of the Supreme Council, because that's the maximum number of possible approaches you can get. 
You want to cover as many approaches as possible, you need 70 members. And that's also why there were 70 nations representing 70 different cultures, 70 different approaches to society, to civilization, 70 different, um, d- uh, 70 different languages, mentalities, perspectives. So the 70 nations, <laughs> each one represented a different culture, a different perspective. And each one, as we said, God gave them a distinct angel that led them and was responsible for them and responsible for the distinctness of each nation. So it wasn't just that they happened to spread out in this way, but every nation has a very unique and distinct culture and perspective that is meant for that particular nation. Now, how that works today, we'll get to in just a few moments. Any questions? Well, who came up with the number? I mean, why 70? I just explained why 70. I know, you did, but why? Who came up with that number? Where does it say 70? Why not 40 or 25? Because 70 is the maximum number of approaches and perspectives that you can have. God knew that. Oh, God came up with that number. Oh, why did God decide the 70 approaches? That's the way God created our world when, in that way. Uh, when they translated the uh, Jewish scriptures from Hebrew to Greek, was that like 70 people too, wasn't it? It was 70 people. Very good point. I'm not sure if there's an exact re- relationship with that. The Talmud actually says 72, oh. although the translation was called the Septuagint, which means 70. Should be 70 is not exact. Um, that's a very good point. It does say, though, that in the days of Joshua already, they translated the Torah into 70 languages, to every possible language out there. Um, when, when God spread um, the people out, I, I, always, I always understood it as to be a punishment. Yes. Why? What did they do wrong? Uh, they were corrupt. That's a good question. Well, they weren't corrupt. They were, that was the people before the flood. The people in the Tower of Babel don't appear to have been corrupt, and the Torah is not clear about what they did wrong. And that's really a discussion of its own about the story of the Tower of Babel, which one day we'll have to have a class on that topic. Yes? Well, if God created us in his own image, mm-hmm. how did we end up having all these murderous, violent that's a very good question, not directly related, but um, the Torah already explained this last week when we spoke about creation, that God gave every person an evil inclination that pushes us to do bad. So the 70 nations are listed in this week's parshin, Parshas Noach, as the descendants coming from Noach's three sons. The Torah actually lists them. A careful count actually shows There's a little bit more than 70, depending on how you count. There's 73 or 74 names. And so there's some debate over exactly who is counted, um, who is not counted. Um, Some suggest maybe 70 is a rounded number. It's not exactly 70. Uh, Regardless, this list of nations found in this week's Parsha, in Parsha's Noah, at the beginning of the Torah, is repeated almost exactly the same in the book of Divrei Hayamim, in the book of Chronicles. It goes through the 70 nations as well. It is the only ancient list of nations that we know of. Later, there's later lists that come from 
Roman times or even later, but the only list that goes back this far, three, over 3,000 years, is found in the Torah. There is no other list of nations. Now, there has been a lot of debate among commentaries as to whom each nation is. How do we identify these nations? It should be clear, though, that they are split among Noah's three sons. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Most believe that Shem and his descendants, hence the name Semites, come from Shem, um, settled in the Middle East, in the area, land of Israel, Mesopotamia, what was called the Fertile Crescent, which is a crescent that goes along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, um, western Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and that area. Um, Ham's descendants settled in North Africa. They were the original African peoples. This is not sub-Saharan Africa, uh, black Africans, but this is the northern, they're darker skinned. Um, but they were, over time, they were conquered by the Greeks, then later the Romans, and later the Arabs, and there isn't much left of the Berber or original Egyptian cultures. And then the third son, Yefet, um, settled in um, Europe and um, North, uh, Europe and parts of Asia. And uh, that would be um, often associated with what they call today Indo-European. Now, the nations identified in the Torah were not around for very long. Because nations come and go. They appear and disappear very quickly. If you look at one of those maps that show you the world 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or every century for the last thousand years, you'll see it looks totally different. Nations, peoples come and go. Um, and it's not only countries. It's also languages spoken evolve, nations evolve. Um, so, in fact, while the nations described by Noah in the portion of Noah happened sometime after Noah, before Abraham. Abraham was about 300 years after Noah. So it was during that 300-year period. Moses came... 500 years after Abraham was born. So by Moses' days, many of those original 70 nations were long gone. They had either merged, evolved into new nations, just disappeared from the map entirely. Many new nations had appeared out of nowhere. In fact, from Abraham himself, by Moses' days, there are many um, nations, such as um, Abraham's Abraham's descendants, Yishmael, he had other sons, Medan, Midian, which are nations mentioned in the Torah, um, Edom, which came from Isaac's son, Esav, from Abraham's nephew, Lot, came two nations, Ammon and Moab, that both lived east of Israel in modern-day Jordan. So there were many other nations that had developed since Abraham by Moses' days. So it's clear that by the time Moses came around, the 70 nations were no longer 70. They had evolved, they had changed. Nations had come, nations had gone. Um, there are many nations that are mentioned in the days of Moses that are not mentioned in the original 70. So, trying to identify these 70 nations, even for Moses would have been hard. 
definitely for us today would be very difficult. It's almost impossible for us to positively identify most of these 70 nations. So commentaries and historians have attempted to do so because this is a fascinating piece of history and um, a fascinating document of history, um, we could call it. And so they've done so mostly by comparing their names as listed in the Torah to the names of known peoples that we know from that period. We're talking about going back some 4,000 years. Or close to 4,000 years. And so we go, we look at um, some names that have been mentioned. Some of these nations are indeed mentioned later in the Torah or later in Scripture. And so there has been attempts over the years to try to identify who these nations actually are. The first recorded attempt that we have is from a Hellenized Jew called Josephus, who wrote a couple books in Greek and a book in Hebrew. Um, and so in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, he wrote, uh, over there he attempts to identify the various 70 nations, the Talmud, both the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, as well as the Midrash Rabbah, all also attempt to identify who these different nations were. And over the years, there's been many attempts by different scholars and commentaries, all the way through to modern times with modern historians attempting to use what we found more recently, thanks to archaeology and thanks to recent findings, try to and use other modern techniques to try to, linguistic techniques, to try to identify who these 70 nations are. Um, so there's been, in addition to Jews attempting to identify these 70 nations for the last 3,000 years, um, many non-Jews have. Many Christians, of course, have, because they read the Bible too. And uh, so have many secular scholars. But in this class today, we're going to try to focus on the classic Jewish traditions and try to identify at least some of those 70 nations to figure out who they are. So here's the list in the Torah in short. So first the Torah starts with Yefet, the son of Noah. Yefet, there's some debate as to which son was oldest, which son was youngest. But the Torah starts with Yefet, who's usually identified with the ancestor of the Indo-European peoples. So the first son of Yefet is Gomer. Now Gomer. Gomer, the Talmud tells us, is Germamia, or in some versions, Germania. Many people identify that with Germans, European Germans. It sounds awfully similar. Although some disagree, Tuataretz and others say no, there was actually an Anatolian group called, um, uh, that lived in Anatolia in the Taras Mountains, which is Kurdish areas, um, called Germania as well. So it may have been that group. Yes? Would it be fair to surmise from that that one of the 70 languages was German? An early version of German. Right, Possibly that, if this is indeed German. As we'll see, the Germans are going to come up soon again. Do we think that many of the current languages throughout Europe were originated at this time? Probably not. Almost certainly not. Uh, as far as I know, linguists, and I'm, this is beyond my field of expertise, Linguistic historians believe that European languages came fairly recently, the last thousand years or so. They're, they're fairly recent in the history of languages. But 
So then the next one mentioned is Magog. Now, Magog, the Talmud says, is Kanadia. Now, Kanadia was an ancient name for Crete, which is an island, a Greek island in the Mediterranean. Um, Crete, sorry. Um, and so perhaps that is Crete. Abarbanel, who was a 15th century scholar, thinks that it was the Goths, which was a Germanic people that lived in Eastern Europe in Roman times. Um, Magog actually features later prominently in a reading in Isaiah, a description in Isaiah that we actually read on Sukkot, um, about a war usually associated with Armageddon, uh, or the end of times, um, that there will be this great war that will involve this nation of Magog. The next one mentioned is Madai. Now, Madai is pretty easy to identify because Madai is mentioned many times in Scripture. It is, def- is clearly Media. Media was a nation that um, was the source of the Mede Persian Empire. Um, our Jewish sources, and many times in Scripture, it describes how the Mede Persian Empire superseded or took over what had been the Babylonian Empire, led by Darius and Cyrus. Um, what is usually referred to as the Persian Empire was actually a Mede Persian Empire. The Medes were a people that lived in um, eastern uh, Persia, and uh, they eventually, over time, merged with the Persians in what became the Persian Empire. So Madai is definitely meat. The next son is Yavan. Yavan is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, but later in Jewish literature, from the earliest times, post-Scripture, Second, Talmud, Second Temple period, Talmudic Scripture, Mishnaic Scripture, um, it is referred to, it is the name for Greeks, Yavan. Um, it's always used the name for, always been the name for Greece for at least two and a half thousand years since the days of Alexander. Um, the Talmud actually says that Yavan is Macedonia. Now, it may well be that the, for, the, for the Talmudic scholars, Macedonia and Greece were synonymous. Today we know Macedonians and Greek were two different nations, though a Macedonian Alexander was the one that conquered all of Greece. Uh, but it was actually a different nation that spoke a different language. Uh, but the Talmud seems to have seen them as synonymous. And that's where the word Yavanim. Yavanim, right, are Greeks. Very good. The next son of Yephes is Tuval. Um, Tuval, the Talmud says, is Bet Onaki. Not sure exactly if they, I, I've, they identify with any nation that we are aware of. A Barbanel lives in the 1500s thinks that they are the ancestors of the Spaniards, the original ancestors. Before the Moors came, before the Arabs came, um, the original ancestors. Meshech, the Talmud says, is Musia. Where exactly Musia is? Commentaries debate. It's not something that we're familiar with. Tiros, the final son of um, the final son of Yefes, is associated with Paras or Persia. The Persians, of course, were the people that inhabited Iran and built what would later be the Persian empires um, and are still around today, still speak Farsi, right? Farsi and Persia. Uh, Persian is the P and F are interchangeable in Hebrew and in other languages 
are clearly the same, and uh, they're still one of those nations that are still there today. The Torah then tells us that Gomer, one of the sons of Yefes that we mentioned earlier, has three sons, Ashkenaz, Rifas, and Tugarma. The Midrash identifies them as Asia. Asia, by the way, was not what today we call the massive continent of Asia, but in Roman times, Asia was today is called Asia Minor or Anatolia. So the Talmud was written in Roman times, that was Anatolia, modern-day Turkey was referred to then as Asia. Um, Rifas is Hadayif, and, Tur- and Tugarma is Germania. Again, you have Germany. Um, Gomer earlier, we said, was, the Talmud says, was Germania. So maybe one of her, his sons in particular, Tugarma, was Germania. Interestingly, in the last thousand years, we Jews have begun to call Ashkenaz, Germany, our Hebrew word for Germany has become Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz is the name for Germany that we've known for, it's been used for at least a thousand years. That term for Germany, the name Ashkenaz is mentioned in scripture, um, but it's in Isaiah, but it's unclear what he's referring to. Uh, but we definitely call Jews from Germany Ashkenazim, and Germany's always been called Ashkenaz. We've also referred to Turkey or Anatolia as Tugarma. Uh, for the last thousand years or so, at least a couple hundred years. Um, so we don't know for certain, of course, but those are the names that have been given. Yavan, we're told, has four sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. Later, at least three of those, Elisha, Tarshish, and Kitim, appear to be islands, because we find later in, skip, in Scripture people, people taking ships to Elisha, Tarshish, and Kitim. Jonah famously takes a ship to Tarshish, where he gets thrown overboard in the middle of a storm and gets swallowed by a big fish in the story of Jonah. Perhaps these were some of the major Greek islands. Any questions? They still use the name Anatolia. It just means east. Okay. It It was a name given for, well, today's Turkey before the Turks were there, living there. So then moving on to Noah's next son, Ham. Ham, we said, was the ancestor of people from northern Africa. So his first son is Cush. Cush is usually associated with Ethiopia. The modern Ethiopians are black Africans. Um, likely Cush was not Ethiopia, but maybe a little bit further down the Nile River, a little further north on the Nile, um, Upper Egypt, what was called, or um, Nubia, Abyssinia, um, which are areas a little bit further modern-day Sudan, which are not what we'd call today black Africans, dark-skinned, but um, kind of the, they're, they're different, they're not the same as black Africans, probably from a little further north, but Kush was definitely an ancient term for that region. Um, Yonatan ben Uziel, um, an early commentator from Second Temple period, says that they are the Arabs. He says, Aravim, the Arabs, are um, Kush. Mitzrayim clearly refers to Egypt, right? Clearly, Mitzrayim is Egypt. It's mentioned many times in Scripture. It's where we ended up 
um, we ended up in Egypt. Um, and so uh, definitely Mitzrayim referred, we were slaves there. Um, and we had many interactions with Egypt after that throughout scripture. So clearly Mitzrayim is Egypt. The next son of Ham is Put. Josephus says that Put is Luv. Luv is the ancient Libya, or the tribes. Libya was a term that was used for the tribes that lived along the Mediterranean coast west of Egypt. In northern Africa, they either tribes there was Egyptians that lived along the Nile River, and then there's really no other rivers um, in northern Africa, and it's all desert. And so tribes just lived along the Mediterranean. There were various settlements over the years that were settled along the Mediterranean. So both east of Egypt, oh, sorry, west of Egypt, were referred to as um, Libyans, Luv. The fourth son of Ham is Canaan. Canaan is the nations that settled the land of Israel um, along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Later, the children of Israel drove them out. The Torah says that Cush has five sons, Seva, Chavila, Safta, Rama, and Saftacha. And that Rama himself has two sons that become nations, Sheva and Dedan. Rav Sajagon puts them all in the Arabian Peninsula, maybe following Yonatan ben Uziel, who said earlier translated Cush as Arabs. Um, or perhaps they were nations or tribes that lived along the upper Nile, um, in various spots along the upper Nile. Mitzrayim, which we identified earlier as Israel, as Egypt, um, subdivides into seven nations. Ludim, Anavim, Lehavim, Naftuchim, Pasrusim, Kasluchim, who the Torah says became the Philistines, and Kaftorim. These are all presumably identified as early tribes from Egypt. We don't know which ones they are. Um, the Philistines, of course, the Kasluch and the Torah says clearly became the Philistines. They were a nation that settled southwest of Israel, um, you know, along what today, near what today is called the Gaza Strip. It was part of the land given to Abraham, but never actually conquered by Israel. And um, the Jews had a lot of trouble from them um, over the years, throughout Scripture, throughout the book of Samuel, uh, book of Judges, book of Samuel, they run into a lot of trouble with the Philistines. Eventually, um, like most nations in the Middle East, the Philistines disappear and become subsumed in a larger Aramean-speaking people um, after the Babylonian and, um, and Persian conquests. Then we're told that Canaan, the fourth son of Ham, has 11 nations. Sidon, which is still a city today in um, Lebanon, and we know the Sidonim were an ancient people that lived where Sidon is today. Um, as well as Chiti, Yevusi, Emori, Girgashi, Chivi. Those five nations are all among the nations that God said, that God commanded us to drive out of the land of Israel. In the book of Joshua, we drive those nations out. Um, and those were the ones that were in what had been the land of Canaan um, that we drove out and destroyed and took their land and became the land of Israel. Um, and then we're given a couple of other sons, Arki, Sini, Avardi, Smori and Hamasi, um, we don't know who those nations are. Maybe Sini is from the Sinai area, um, which is usually, usually identified with the southern Sinai, um, but we don't know exactly who those nations are. Do you know that when we went to finally inhabit Canaan, that there were 
described as giants mm -hmm. living in those lands. Which of these tribes? That's a very good question. In the days of Abraham, the Torah tells us that the giants were descended from a nation called Rephaim that had mostly been wiped out in the days of Abraham, but a handful of them were still left in the days of Moses. Um, I don't know which of these 70 the Rephaim came from. The Torah isn't clear about that. What do you mean? As elsewhere in the Torah. No, all the names that you just mentioned just now, none of them had, nobody had the same name as somebody else. Oh, each of these 70 have different names, yes. Each nation has different names. There's actually some that we have twice. Lud is mentioned twice. There's some that actually are, we have different nations that are the same. There's a Lud from Egyptian Lud, and then there is, um, Shame has a son Lud as well. Yes? You talk about the tribes of Israel. Tribes of Israel are these seventy tribes. Any tribe? No, we don't know who these are. We're trying to identify them. It's it's a it's a hard thing to do. We don't. We can't. Yes. Someone God was choosing to whom to give the Torah. Mm -hmm. Was it choosing among these seventy tribes, or presumably? Oh, okay. And he chose, but we're as we'll see. We were Abraham was a member of one of these seventy tribes, Ivrim, the Hebrews. Okay. So Shame, the third son of Noah, has. Five sons, as we mentioned, they lived in what was called the Fertile Crescent um, along the Mediterranean coast and then along the um, Tigris and Euphrates River, modern-day Iraq, Iran area. Um, so his first son is Elam. Elam is a nation that we know of, um, that we've identified, um, referred to by in ancient sources in many places. They lived east of Mesopotamia, an area between Mesopotamia and Persia, um, along um, southwest, sorry, southwest Iran today. Um, the next son is Ashur. Ashur is generally identified as Assyria. Assyria was a nation that lived along the northern Tigris River. Their big city was Nineveh, and uh, it's still there today in Iraq. And uh, the Assyrians later built a great empire that stood for hundreds of years, the Assyrian Empire. The next son is Arpachshad, Josephus says that our Pachshad is the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans was a nation that settled in Mesopotamia, um, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Chaldean, built the Babylonian Empire. Then Lud is the next son. Lud is possibly a nation called Lydia that lived in um, eastern, uh, in western Anatolia. It was a nation called Lydia, uh, an ancient nation, and then. Finally, the fifth son is Aram. Aram was a nation that lived in ancient Syria, mentioned many times. Abraham came from Aram, um, which was where he came from, northern Syria. Um, the Aram, the Damascus, um, and Aleppo were all part of ancient, ancient cities, part of ancient Aram. 
and they're mentioned, it's mentioned many times throughout Scripture. Aram, of course, is the source of the Aramean, uh, Aramaic language, which was, um, for many years, the language of the Middle East. After the Babylonian conquest, it was the nation of the Babylonian and later Persian empires. Then the Torah tells us that Aram had a son called Shelach. Shelach had a son called Aver. Presumably, Aver is the source of the Ivrim. Ivrim, Abraham was referred to as an Ivri, and his descendants are referred to as an Ivri, as Ivrim until they emerge from Egypt as their own independent nation of Israel. But until then, while in Egypt and before that, they're always referred to as Ivrim, presumably as descendants of Aver. Now, to be clear, the language that we call today Hebrew, right? Aver, Ivrim would be Hebrews, right? Is Hebrew is just an anglicized term for Ivri. Uh, the language that we call today Hebrew does not come from Aver. The language that we call today Hebrew was given that name about 100 years ago, but historically that language was always called Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. That's what it was always called. Um, some secular Zionists that built modern Hebrew didn't like the idea of calling their modern Jewish language that they wanted to recreate um, into a spoken language. They didn't like the idea of calling it the holy tongue, since some of them were atheists, and so therefore they came up with Hebrew after the nation that Abraham came from. But it was always called the holy tongue, and we believe that was the original language, a language that, a that Adam spoke, that Noah spoke, and that people spoke before God split up the nations into 70 different languages. So, um, but Abraham was a Hebrew, every descendant of Aver. Aver had two sons, Peleg, who is the ancestor of Abraham, and Yaktan. Yaktan, we're told, has 13 sons, each who become their own nation. Almoded, Shalav, Chatzamavas, Yarach, Hadorom, Uzal, Dikla, Uval, Avimar, Sheva, Ofer, Chavila, Yovav. We don't know what happened to any of those nations. Rav Sajagon says they all settled into the Arabian Peninsula and became Arab tribes. Um, the, uh, Maimonides says that they eventually merged with the descendants of Yishmael, um, the sons of Abraham, and um, became what in Maimonides' days were known as the Arabs. So these are the 70 nations. We were able to identify some of them pretty positively. Some of them possibly, and some of them not at all. What about everybody else who isn't mentioned? People always ask. What about the Chinese, the Indians, the sub-Saharan Africans, the American natives, and all the other peoples that are not mentioned? So a simple reading of the Torah would seem to imply that in the flood everybody was killed except for Noah and his family. If that is indeed the case, then everyone who lived afterwards would have to be descendants of Noah. We have not been able to positively identify most of these 70 nations. So chances are that all these other peoples are then descendants of some of these 70 nations that we failed to identify. Um, some suggest indeed, and there is some source for this in the Midrashim, that um, possibly not all, that not all the world was destroyed in the flood, but only a certain area of the world around the Middle East um, greater Middle East area was destroyed in the flood, and so therefore only those nations were descendants of Noah, but indeed there were people in other places, whether in sub-Saharan Africa, or in East Asia, or in the Americas at the time, that were not affected by the flood, and therefore not descendants of Noah. Which one? I guess we may never know. 
So it should be clear, though, as I mentioned earlier, that these 70 nations were there for a very short time. Um, with time, they evolved into new nations, some split, new nations emerged, some merged with existing nations, new nations were formed, some just disappeared entirely, perhaps they were destroyed in war or in plague. Um, as we mentioned just from Abraham, there were many nations, by the days of Moses, there were many nations that were not mentioned, that are not part of these 70 nations, because they're the sons of Abraham, or the sons of Abraham's nephew Lot. So the many nations evolved over the years, even by Moses' days, some 500 years after Abraham, um, there were no longer those 70 nations. They had evolved, there were new nations, some of the old nations were gone, uh, merged, or whatever else it may have been. Um, but those nations are still important, as we mentioned earlier, that those original nations were the original 70 languages, led by 70 angels, and each one represented a different perspective, a different culture, a different perspective on um, how to live, on society. Interestingly, the Torah, in Parshat Hazin, at the very end of the Torah, tells us that we are going to be punished. When God decides to punish us for our sins, the people of Israel, God is going to punish us by sending a non-nation to destroy us. What's a non-nation? Below Am, a non-nation. What's a non-nation? So um, Midrash tells us the Babylonians who destroyed the temple, the word Babel means a mix. Babylonians, while Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean, Babylonians were a mix of many nations. There wasn't a particular nation that lived in the city of Babylon. It was a metropolis that had lots and lots of people from all over the Middle East that came there, and while they spoke Aramaic, was the language of the um, empire, but it did not, they weren't a particular tribe or nation. The Talmud tells us the same is about the Romans who destroyed our conquered Israel again and destroyed our second temple. The Talmud says the Romans are a non-people and their language, Latin, is a non-language. And Rashi, the great commentary on the Talmud, tells us that while sometimes nations merge together, or nations evolve, but they've taken a lot from a single nation, or from two nations, and so they have a very distinct culture, something unique. The Romans are just a mix, and Latin was just a mix of lots of nations and lots of languages. And so, and Tosmuth explains that while other languages represent and other cultures have very defined characteristics, defined perspectives that take after some of those initial 70 nations, the Romans represented nothing. They had no meaningful culture, no meaningful. I know we, today we look at culture, we look back to the Romans, but um, the great Jewish commentaries thought the Romans had no culture and their language represents nothing. So almost none of those initial 70 nations exist today. Maybe a handful of them that we can identify today that are still a language. Yet today, each nation still has something unique. Every nation today, every people today have a unique culture, unique traditions, unique mentality. For many years, that wasn't celebrated. The mid-19th century, there was a movement called nationalism. It caused a lot of trouble, nationalism. Um, but a lot of wars, a lot of violence. But nationalism was the idea that every nation, every people, every group is unique. Every nation, every culture is something unique to share. 
And this is based on this concept. We Jews believe that. Just as those initial 70 nations have something unique, every nation in the world today has something unique. In fact, Kabbalists explained that just as the initial 70 nations were led by 70 angels, so to today every nation is directed by an angel that looks after it. Every nation has its own guardian angel that looks after it and is responsible for its culture, responsible for its development. Some nations, their angels are clearly not very good because they, they haven't had a very good history. But every nation has something to bring to the table. Every nation has something meaningful, something powerful to share. The Rebbe therefore said that international events like the United Nations General Assembly, a gathering of nations, where God brings various nations together so that we can pull together our positive resources, the positive aspects of our culture, positive ideas that we have to work towards a greater good. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out that way. Many nations have bad leaders. Many nations have failed to develop effectively. But every nation has positive sides to it, and we can find positive qualities that exist in each and every nation, in each and every culture. The Torah tells us that God counted the nations to the number of the children of Israel. Yatsev gvolot amim nemispar b'nei Yisrael. Rashi tells us there are 70 Israelite families in the days of Moses corresponding to the 70 nations. Isaiah speaks of Israel's role to be a light to the nations. And we have lived for the last 2,000 years of exile. Jews have been spread out. There are Jews today in almost every single country on earth. Jews have lived in every culture. Jews speak every single language. We've adopted aspects of various cultures. Today, Jewish cultures, culture is a mix of cultures from around the world. A lot of foods that we associate as Jewish foods are really foods from around the world, from various places that we came from. Jews speak many, many different languages. And from each one, we've learned many positive lessons. But most importantly, Jews have been spread around the world because we have values that we need to teach each nation. We believe that God chose our people from all peoples on earth because we have a destiny to help each nation improve itself, to help each nation find the good within its culture and its purpose for being and find what it can give to the world on a whole. And we as Jews who have lived among these nations can pull the positives out of each culture. And each culture has, cultures have negatives too, but each culture has its positive, each nation has its positives. And we, who our role is to help everybody fulfill their godly mission, can find each nation's godly mission, the godly part, the spiritual part of each culture, and find meaning within each and every nation. So in summary, we Jews value culture. We value the variations between one culture, between one nation and the next nation. It shouldn't be a source of friction, but it should be a source where we can work together for greater good because everyone has something different to bring to the table. And we Jews really are meant to serve as a light to the nations to show each nation how to use their positive things, how to use their culture in order to... Um, it, it, how to use their culture in order to better serve God and better make a positive impact in this world.